Amen. Amen. Good morning. Hey, if you're able to remain standing just for a couple more moments, we'd love to direct our, our hearts and our minds to our, our scripture today. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be verses 1 to 14. Um, I'd love to read it. The verses will be on the screen um, as you follow along. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Verse 1 says, Well then, Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives." Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, Give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. This is the word of the Lord to us today. You can be seated. Amen. Well, good morning again. Um, My name is Nick, one of the pastors here. So glad that you are here. Um, So grateful for moments like the ones we just had where we get to come into the space and God's allowed us to kind of slow down and man, and just think about as I was, we were singing some of those phrases that I hope and pray that as you sing them, as you hear them, they remind you again of the goodness of God, that he's good, that he's with us. Maybe some of you need to hear that right now and remember, and I know it takes some time in these moments, some, some moment, we take some time to get our minds and our hearts ready, but to just get to sing and worship and remember that he's our rescuer, he's our deliverer, is so good. Um, and hey, I know that we're, we're in it, we're in Christmas season, um, I'm not sure what your house looks like or your neighborhood looks like, but I know my, my house is getting there with Christmas stuff. Uh, we're getting there, but it's such a fun season. Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about that here as we begin before we jump into the text. But, but all that to say, um, I'm just glad you're here. In the midst of all the things, I'm glad that we have this moment together. If you're visiting, I just want to welcome you as well. And just thank you. We're glad that you found us. And we hope that this time together is a blessing to you. Um, Today, 
is the first day of Advent. As many of you know that, first day of Advent, um, and Advent starts four weeks before Christmas Sunday. And so when I talk about Christmas being here, I mean, this is the beginning of this, this season intentionally meant to prepare our hearts for, for Christ's coming. Um, one of the things that I learned this week, though, is that, that Advent, the first Sunday of Advent, marks the, the, the new year for the Christian It's the new year in the church calendar. And so again, church calendar was developed over church history. It helps guide our hearts. If you look at any liturgies, it helps guide our hearts towards um, Christ's coming, Christ's life, Christ's death, guide our hearts towards the gospel. And it helps give us prompts that remind us how to read, how to pray, how to do those things. But it's interesting that the, the new year for the Christian is a season of waiting, we come into it, and we come in with this, hopefully, this posture of anticipation, of preparation, of expectation, as we, as we await the arrival of our king. And, and as you think about this season, I, I, I do think it's unique, you know, because life is full of waiting. But for the Christian, we all are recipients already, that's why we're here, of what Christ came to give what Christ came to bring, um, what we've received, which is the gospel, which is grace, which is forgiveness, which is life. And one of the things I was thinking also about this week is that, that we're able to heighten, we're able to heighten the joy of Christmas when we remember the scenarios in which Christ came into and what I mean by that is, as we think about this first Sunday of Advent, the main theme of, the, of this Sunday is all about hope. This, this awaiting for this promise to come, and we have this hope that he will fulfill it, that he will keep his promise. And, but if you think about the scenario again that he was born into, the, these, there's four words that kind of jump out at me as I think about that. Um, and these are the words, that the scenario that was there uh, for God's people, as they were awaiting, was this scenario of distress, darkness, waiting, wondering. And I, I think about that as I read Isaiah 9, which is a rich, again, it's a Christmas passage, where the context of which this prophecy comes in Isaiah 9 is this idea that, that the God's people were in distress and they were in darkness because... They were chasing after their own things. They were following what was right in their own eyes. They were, they were consumed with idolatry or religiosity. And, and yet they had these promises that a Messiah would come, but he wasn't there yet. They were like, Where, what's going on? And, and what's also interesting is that in the context of, again, this Christmas themes and story, is that the time period between the when Malachi, the last prophet, came to God's people and proclaimed to them to when Christ came was 400 years. So between the last prophet and when Christ came, 400 years of, they say, of silence. And can you imagine 400 years where you're like, Lord, where are you? You promised. How come you're not coming? And, and did we miss it? Have you forgotten us? Have you abandoned us? And yet then Christ comes. And this is the scenarios which he steps into. And you can imagine again the joy. You can imagine again how much Christ's coming then changes everything. And that's a big theme for me as I think about stepping into our, ta- our passage today, but also this season, is that 
the reality for us is that Christ changes everything. Because we know that he came, he is a promise keeper. He has kept his promises. We know that all those desires that were in God's people's heart, God fulfilled them. He satisfied them. Those hopes were actualized. And and just like Advent, we know that he came in his first Advent. We also anticipate in Advent a second Advent when Christ will return again. But there's also this middle Advent where, where if you're a Christ follower, when you gave your heart to Christ, there was a coming, an arrival of Christ into your heart, into my heart. That's an Advent too. And that we live in that, but we anticipate the one to come, but we rejoice in the one that has come. Right? It's all there. And this is good news. And it changes the way we live, the way we think, the way we talk. It changes everything. And, and you think about the passage that we just walked through last week, Romans 5, and just by way of context, Romans 5, the last part of that section, it's all about, it's how I remember it in my head, it's all about Adam and Jesus. Adam, because of his sin, brought death. Death spread to all men because all sinned. And Adam, as the representative of humanity, it, it spread to all of us. And we're marked by it. We're marked by death. We're marked by rule, uh, sin's rule. We're marked by brokenness. We're, we're marked by condemnation. And yet a greater Adam, the greater Adam, uh, Jesus, comes in, doesn't, doesn't fall into sin because he's blameless and he's God and he's sinless. And by his one act of righteousness, he, he, he triumphs over sin, he triumphs over death, and he's, he makes a way for us to be made right with God. I mean, that's good news, and it changes everything. It changes everything because he's reversed what Adam did and what Adam brought. And you get to verses 20 and 21 of last week's chapter just by way of context, and it says God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. God's law, remember, was, was intended to be a mirror showing us again how sinful we are. We can't keep the law on our own. And actually it was meant to be a guide, guiding us to Jesus. But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. It became more wonderful because we realized more and more that we can't save ourselves and we need God's grace. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Jesus has done. That's what he's brought. And it changes everything. And again, linger there in your mind. It changes everything because when you get to chapter 6, verse 1, Paul anticipates, he, he anticipates an objection or he thinks like, all right, there's going to be this thought that gets created because if grace rules, if we're saved by grace and not by the law or by the works of the law, then it could raise a question for its readers. And, and this question in verse 1 drives the rest of the passage. And the question is, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Or the ESV says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now at first glance, the question sounds nice. It sounds kind of like they're trying to be 
good people. Like, like let's, just, let's just, because if God's grace abounds when we sin, then let's continue sinning so that we can keep on experiencing it because I want to display it more and more. Right? Because if that's what happens, but caution, there's a, there's a darker underbelly to the question. And, and Paul, his answer is what? By no means, not at all, no way. But just sit. One of the things I found myself doing this week as I was preparing is I just kind of sat in the first five words. Should we keep on sinning? Well, after the well then, I guess. Should we keep on sinning? And the more I sat in that question, the more resolved I became as, as a Christian that that question feels odd. It doesn't feel right. It shouldn't feel right. Should we keep on sinning? That's not what Paul's heart was at all in Romans 5. Paul's heart in Romans 5 was to show, it was to accentuate how wonderful God's grace was because we know our sin. We know how real it is and how powerful it is and how tangible it is. But it wasn't to move us to keep there, to stay there. But this concept of grace is so radical. It's so foreign to our hearts and and kind of the bent of our hearts apart from God that he, he brings up the question for us. And he kind of, because he anticipates that some would say this, if we're saved by grace, then won't that leave the door open to sinful living? Wouldn't grace just encourage sin? If we're saved by grace, does, does sin even matter then in the Christian life? And, and those who ask it, this question, those who ask it, what are they missing? So, I mean, I think our minds probably go different places, probably can answer it. What are we missing if we, if we stay there? If, if that's where, our, one, we're maybe, we're, we're not understanding what Christ came to do, but we're also missing the fact that, man, a God who lavishes grace on a people not deserving of grace will inspire love, will inspire obedience, will inspire them giving themselves their whole lives to, to God. What they're missing is that God not only rescues us from our sin, but he gives us a new heart and he places a Holy Spirit in a, his Holy Spirit in us and he changes us from the inside out. He writes God's law on our hearts. And so we can't miss it. But I will say, I will say that I am ashamed to, to admit that the temptation of this question, of this verse I've used at times to justify myself giving into sin. Where I've, I have had that thought or been tempted to go, well, if I'm saved by grace, then I could, I could do that thing. I can, I can watch that thing. I can, I can, I can justify this lie because God, will, God forgives me. God will forgive me. Now, he does forgive us. He will forgive us. He has forgiven us in Christ. Yes, but sadly, I've abused his grace. I've leveraged it to sin. And I hope that you've never been there. But I, I, will, I will probably think that I'm not the only one. But we know it's not right. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say. It's cheapens grace. It's cheap grace. God's grace is designed and it's effective to free us and to lead us from sin. And so Paul says, by no means. We are not to keep on sinning. That's not the way we're to operate. If we do that, we're missing it. We're not grasping the realities 
of salvation. Something has happened in us and he's made us new. And so what happens in the rest of the passage, and we'll keep moving here, is that Paul begins to lay out why. And he, he builds this question, this answer on these three realities that are given to us when we believed in Christ. When you've given your heart to Christ, in that moment, these three realities happen. And, and I'll just give you a summary, but then we'll walk through them a little bit each. The first one is this, you've died to sin. The second, you've been united with Christ. And the third is we've been made alive to God. So we've died to sin, we've been united with Christ, we've been made alive to God. So reality number one, we've died to sin. You see it right there in verse two. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? We've died to it. It's been defeated. If you have a copy of the scriptures right in front of you, which I hope you do, or you're taking notes or you have your phone out, I mean, you can just do a cursory glance and you can note or circle or underline all the times that a reference to dying or, 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 or being crucified are in it. So verse three, we joined him in his death. Verse four, we died and were buried with Christ. Verse five, since we've been united with him in his death. Verse six, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ. Verse seven, for when we died with Christ. I mean, it keeps, verse eight, so since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. I mean, it's right there. It's it's such a strong theme. But what's it mean? What's it mean that that we're dead to sin? Because it doesn't feel that way all the time. And that's true. And, and I will say that, that this, this phrase, we've, we've died to sin or we're dead to sin, does not mean that we won't struggle with sin or that we won't give in to sin, that the struggle is over. But what is at play here is that when you gave your life to Christ, in that moment, something monumental happened. That in that moment, you were transferred into a new realm. You're transferred from the realm of darkness. And this is what Colossians 1 says. It says that he rescued us from the, from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. And so he's transferred us and we're no longer under Adam. We're no longer under his dominion, his rule, his representation. You are placed now under the dominion of Christ And as a part of that, sin is no longer the ruling power. Sin no longer rules is what the last part of chapter 5, but grace rules, Christ rules. Another way to think about it is that we're no longer under its reign or sin's mastery. There's been a change in power dynamics. You see that, that idea all through the passage too where where sin loses its power. We're no longer slaves. We've been set free. Sin is no longer your master. Now, I will say that obviously sin still wants to be your king. Sin still wants to be my master. Sin still does have influence in my life. It's still the, the experiences I've had, the, 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 my allowances to see or to watch or to think things or to do things. It's still, still there, but it's no longer the ruling power. It's no longer my master. Tim Keller, in his commentary, he gives this illustration where he he uses a military illustration. And he says, imagine a wicked military force that has complete control of a country, but a good army invades. Think about Christmas, Christ comes. A good army invades. 
and the good army throws the wicked force out of power and gives the capital and the seat of government and all communication back to the people. This is Christ. This is him being the new ruling power. Now Keller goes on and he says, now the out of power soldiers, they could still live out in the bush. They, they can operate as a kind of guerrilla warfare. They can create havoc for this new and, and rightful government. It can often impose its will on the country or different areas, even though in Christ's realm, it will never get back into power. So having died to sin does not mean that sin is no longer within you or that it does no longer have influence in you, but sin no longer can dictate to you. Though you and I, we may obey it at times, the fact remains that we don't have to obey it. You have died to it. You can resist it and you can win. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect until Christ comes, but we can fight against it. We have, again, his influence now. He is the internal power now. Whereas sin still externally fights, we have a new internal power. So we think time, at times, man, I just can't, I can't defeat it. I can't control it. The urge is too strong. I just, I just would say, well, pause, slow down a little bit. As a Christ follower, and according to this passage, who's the new power? You've been given Christ. You've been given his spirit. That thought is too strong. I can't, not for Christ. Now, obviously, we have things that we need to be disciplined in, and there's habits and there's things. But man, what this passage is saying, there's a new reality. You've been dead to sin. The convictions that you feel That's the Holy Spirit affirming to you. He's with you. He's in you. Keep depending. Listen, fighting sin isn't just will, like sure willpower. It's surrender. It's dependence. It's, 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 It's leaning on Christ. The power to defeat sin comes from Christ's presence and his Holy Spirit in us. He's given us everything we need to battle sin. And ultimately, it's been defeated in our lives because the ruling power is now Christ. Second reality, we've been united with Christ. Look at verses, I mean, you can see it in so many different verses, but verse five on on the screen says, since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We've been united with him. So so again, what Paul is getting at is how does this work? How how did we die to sin? Because, Because we've died to sin when we died with Christ. Well, when did that happen? When did I die with Christ? When I gave my life to him. When I gave my heart in faith to Christ, in that moment, we were united to him. And, and, he, and Paul uses the picture of baptism. He uses it as an illustration where when you gave your life to Christ, there was a spiritual baptism that took place where you, were, you died, you were buried, and then you came back to life. Now, again, we know it's a picture that Paul is using of baptism. It didn't, it, he's not talking about literal baptism. That when all this happens when you get baptized on the stage or in the water or in the lake or wherever you were baptized. He's not saying that, but he's using it as a picture. Every time you see a baptism, it reminds you of the internal reality that happened in your life when, when, when you gave your heart to Christ. That in that moment, what was true of Jesus was true of you, Warren Wiersbe says, one of the, one, a pastor I, I read. That what is true of Christ is true of you, that when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. 
And that when he raised the life, you were raised to life. Um, and so your old self, your old sinful self, verse 6 says, has died. It's been crucified with Christ. And when he died, I died with him. One pastor writes that when we read that verse, verse 6, we've been crucified with Christ, that that is actually a fact. It's a fact about you. That you've been crucified with Christ. Your old self is dead. It's gone. And in dying, verse 7, we're set free from the power of sin in our lives. There's something about dying that enables you to live. Dying frees you from sin. Think about it. When, you, when somebody dies, it frees them from that which was marked them in this life. It frees them from debt, frees them from bondage. What binds you in this life is released when you die. But the beauty of the gospel is that we don't stay dead is that when we are united with Christ in his death and we're buried, that old self is gone, we're raised to new life and we're given newness. We're made new. We, won't, we don't stay dead. That's where Galatians 2.20, it's this beautiful picture of one of my favorite verses. My old self has been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me because of my unity to Christ it changes the way I now live the way I now think so that when I think back to that question in verse 1 I go no that's not it because I've been united to Christ third reality we've been made alive to God so we've died to sin we've been united with Christ and implicit in union with Christ is not just union with him in his death but it's also union with him in his life and if you look through the passage, it, it talks about how we've been raised to new life. We've been made new. We've been, alive, made, made, been made alive to God. So we're raised to life. You're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5. And you've been made alive to God. Think about it. what's it mean to be alive. Alive to God. That, that my heart's awakened. I've been given breath. I've been given life. Uh, my heart is aware now. My heart is desirous of, of the one who's awake, desirous to honor, to live for. I'm no longer free from the old power, but I now have a new power. I'm set free. Those are all these amazing benefits of life in God. And think about what happens when we're given life is that because Christ worked for us, it strips Satan of his two core weapons against us. Weapon one, one that Satan likes to use is shame, condemnation. He, he, he accuses us, but Christ has given us forgiveness. And we, we no longer need to stay there with him, with Satan, because we can say, no, I've been forgiven. But he also, Satan uses death and the fear of death and what's going to come. And, am I, and he says, no, we have triumph. We have, we have conquered death. Christ has conquered death. All these things are new because we've been made alive with God. How can we be sure, though? Look at verses 9 and 10. We, we are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. Jesus broke the power of sin by his death. Jesus broke the power of death by his resurrection. 
So you look at what Christ has done and accomplished and what verses 9 and 10 do for us is that when we read them, the reason why Paul is using them is not just to say, hey, look at Jesus. Well, that is actually, that is what he's doing. He's saying, hey, look at Jesus. (laughs) And then know that that is true of you because you've been united with him. So when it says of Jesus that he will never die again, death no longer has any power over him, but, 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 he, but he died once to break the power of sin, and now that he lives, he lives to the glory of God, he's saying, and so you also. This is true of you too. This is our now reality. So likewise, now that we live, just like as Christ lives to the glory of God, now that you live, you live to the glory of God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a progression in the passage. Verses 1 to 10, a big theme is all about knowing. Don't you know? You can be sure. Know that, remember and know that you were crucified, that you've been given life. And so, and so then you get to verse 11 and it switches to consider. So there's these three phrases. Know this to be true. And you see that all through the first 10 verses. But then you get to verse 11 and there's a shift. Not only know it in your heart, but now consider yourself this way. So that as you go through your day, you're considering yourself this way in a sense that, that I'm reminding myself. I'm, I'm counting myself this way. I'm, I'm making sure that I'm constantly viewing myself. Just like in Luke chapter, oh man, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, um, when he says, he says, pick up your cross daily. It's the same thing. It's like consider yourself now daily that this is your new reality. So you know it, now you consider it because the more you consider it, it's on your mind, you're meditating on it, it'll move you to live out who you really are. And then the progression moves to verses 12 to 14 where it then starts to say, all right, and now give yourself completely to God. And if you look at that passage, you know it has these do not give in to sinful desires. It says, do not let sin control you. Do not let any parts of your body become an instrument of evil, but but live for the glory of God. And that's the progression. And that's why he builds the passage that way. But But the foundation is in knowing. So then our minds can be transformed. And then we can go, no, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna keep on sinning. And you live to the glory of God, giving ourselves completely to him. Hey, Let me just offer a few last things for us. First, I just I just want I don't want us to miss the fact that Christ went to great lengths to free us from sin. If you look at verse six, it talks about how we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ, and and we can only be crucified with Christ if he was crucified, but he was crucified so that sin might lose its power in our lives. And so again, as you think about getting plain with sin, growing complacent with sin in your life, justifying sin, I do think that when we're mindful of of the fact that, no, like he went to great lengths because of his love for me to rescue me and to free me from it. That's a beautiful thing. The second thing I would just offer by way of conclusion is, is this, is that today is, always the, is the, today is always the best day to offer yourself completely to God. Some of us in this room might be like, man, I, I mess, I've messed up. I know there's sin in my life. I'm stuck. 
I don't, I don't really even fully understand. I, I still, I, and yet, today is the best day to offer yourselves completely to God. To believe, to cling, to remember, to trust, to remember his grace, to remember he's with you, to remember he saved you. That's not his best for you. His best, his best is over here, away from sin, with him, living out the fruit of the Spirit, living out righteousness. And remember, look, you might think, I just keep giving in, I keep messing up. My, my encouragement to you would go, hey, listen, your life in Christ began with a cry for help. And it doesn't change as you walk with him. You're always crying for help. You're always in dependence of him. You're always needing him. And so cling to him. Now, if you're here in this room and you haven't given your life to Jesus, and maybe you're searching, maybe you're, you're here, somebody invited you, maybe you're struggling with this whole thing. I'm glad that you're here. And I would just say that Christ is the one seeking you. And as you look to, to figure out what life is all about and, and what's going on in your heart, I would just say to, to, to that person, man, Christ sees you and knows you and he loves you completely. And he offers forgiveness and he offers a new rule and he will lead you to good things. But, you, but, but, but he just says, you trust me, love me. The third thing I would just say is, is by way of closing is, I just hope and pray today that we delight in his rescue. Delight in him as our rescuer. You know, sin might, might have had power over us, but it never had claim on Jesus. It never had claim on our, son, our sinless Savior. Jesus was not born into sin and he was not mastered by it. He always loved God. And when he came to earth to die for us, he was able to break the power of sin because he was always greater than it. And so when you think about Christmas, when you think about the table, communion that we're about to participate in, think about that we serve a God who's greater than sin and death. And because we serve him and because we've been made alive in Christ, because we've died with Christ, we're now set free to live for him. And that's our bottom line today. Because we've died with Christ, we're now set free to live for him. And may we do so to the glory of God today.